Hello all, and welcome to another Mangum Talks podcast. This is Spencer here, and I'm here with BJ. BJ, how's it going? It's going pretty well, Spencer. We are here for... Mostly. What was that, mostly? Yes, but we won't talk about that. We'll save the personal details for an after podcast, or the new, was it Whiskey Weekends that we're pondering now? Yep, something like that. I have to save the material for the key events. But we're here for another episode of Mangum Reads, here for part three of our discussion of Guards, Guards. Over the prior episodes, we've discussed our own view of the plot, our own view of the characters, and now we're assessing the world and the various parameters that are built into it, which, as we've talked about before, is a rather fascinating topic for us, given that we jumped in with book eight of a 41-book series. So for large stretches, we were kind of playing catch-up. About, about what you went through, BJ? Yeah, yeah, I think I would, I would agree with that. I'm, well, catch-up-ish. <laughs> I mean, there were, there were times when I, I thought the book did a reasonable job in terms of explaining or setting up each detail. I feel like this is one of those series of where with each book, he kind of reestablishes to at least a certain degree a lot of the overarching themes, or overarching characters, over, overarching setting, while still leaving little bits of a minutia for, the, uh, for only fans to appreciate. I, well... Perhaps. Hard to know. We're kind of <laughs> we're kind of guessing there. We're kind of spit- well. So I'd say we're spitballing, but but I'm actually pretty sure that this is more like he's established a world. So so maybe like a you know here's the U.S. and here's the history of the U.S. and now we're gonna go to Chicago. Yeah. And so like you don't really need to know about the country that is the United States to understand the goings of well or at least appreciate or be subjected to the goings on of chicago and and have that be a story right um and i think i guess that's more my take on what's going on here it's less the here's the world of disc world and more we're going to focus in on the city and i I would agree with that our understanding of the fact that apparently this universe as such is a turtle with elephants carrying a disc on their back traveling through the cosmos endlessly doesn't necessarily inform us much about the story he actually wants to tell with this book it's more just background yeah but over the course of this there are several bits of important world building or overarching themes which would be fun to discuss for our last foray into this particular unique material and i think one of the first ones that really has to go into and is kind of as much a character in its own right is really the city of Ankhor Pork itself. Yeah, it, it, it's it's an interesting city, and, and it reminds me of a couple of jokes that, that I was going to poke fun at, at, at his writing style with, which uh, never never quite made it into previous episodes, but but I feel like no time like the present. Oh, please. Um, I, I'm sorry to have failed you as a straight man once again, but, you know, you got to get him in somewhere. Oh, no, 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 no worries. It... it the the thing that reminded me was um, they were talking about all the guilds and it was the barrows or, or the one of the slums and I don't I don't remember the name now the shades but, shades maybe I think it was my own yeah it was the shades that's it the shades is is such an awful place that that even the beggars choose to live somewhere else and it, it was just sort of one of those things that sort of typified the the book to me and and it was it was kind of a very funny 
reading of what a city is like and and what a city that is sort of crossed over to um, what I guess you could sort of say is the other side Mm -hmm. of sort of running functionally, but not within the normal boundaries of law. Yeah, and we talked about happily over the last episode. It was a really interesting topic of discussion that I not really pondered while I was reading it. That much of Ankh-Morpork seems to be a representation of possibly modern and early modern Britain going through the transition from a more classical aristocratic society to a more modern capitalist one. And how even as it's kicking and screaming being dragged through this, it still persists with many of the institutions of the old era. And you mentioned beggars. I thought one good example of that we hadn't talked about was the uh, the leaders of the Beggars Guild, of where they're you know they're an official guild like everybody else. But as a result of the fact that they're essentially the nobility of the Beggars Guild, when they beg to people, they have to essentially ask, "Hey, can you buy me a seven night all all expense paid vacation?" Right. I mean, because you know if you're gonna beg, there has to be some sort of rank. I, you know, they're 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 basically the um, uh, TV preachers of uh, oh, the begging yeah. world. Yeah, they're the, the evangelicals. It's not just simply about you know paying for new hymn books. It's you know building the extra big mega church that you've got to get. It's a, it's a, it, there, there's you have to keep up appearances. Yeah, I mean, if you don't have a stadium, I mean, what are you really doing? And it's an example of society of where they're transitioning to a capitalist bin. The old nobility doesn't have the same degree of power, whatever else. Uh, Lord Vetinari, the patrician, has kind of built this on what you can offer and what I can get out of you as the basis and foundation for how society progresses. But these necessary necessary images, uh, these necessary uh, fixtures of society in terms of people of power and people of nobility and what they have to represent still persist and are still viewed as necessary and expected, even if they're no longer really part of how society runs. Well, I mean, exactly. Otherwise, like, what kind of, if you don't have a merit-based society, what what can you build and what can you expect of people? Because, you know, if you don't give people essentially their due or whatever, as, as Vetinari does to the heads of these guilds and say, oh, you know, you've worked your way up and you're clearly so good at this. Like, how else could you flatter them if they were just bad at everything? And aspects of that apply to the city itself. I mean, the we've talked about previously that the city itself is essentially legalized crime as a way of trying to solve the crime problem. That it's brought all these formerly illegal and shadowy organizations into the public eye and made them legitimized as part of changing how the city operates. But institutions like the Watch, which would be by all definitions irrelevant and actually contrary to the established norm, are at least publicly maintained because... Well, you have to have a police force. That it's a necessary part of a city. A city has to have a police force. Sure, they have no legal mandate essentially to operate anymore, or at least no legal relevance, but you would expect them to be there. And so as much as the city is built on these new efficiencies, these new, what can you actually contribute, what actual value do we have, these necessary bits of, uh, well, the city has to have this because it's always had this, kind of have to persist. You can't force everyone to change overnight in how they view the world. Yeah, I, very much. I, it, I think it really speaks to if you institutionalize everything, everything definitely needs to be a, like an institution, and that means that it has to follow certain rules. Mm-hmm. And 
veterinary is very much a rules person. Yeah, but but it's interesting as well that that's you know kind of slow play that's required using rules and the slow transition to get people to come around to his point of view only seems to apply in terms of what he's the new goals he's painting for the world these slow change away from existing institutions. For the institute. Okay, so you say a slow change away from the existing institutions, but I I kind of disagree as to what his role is because what he says basically is he took a non functional society Mm -hmm. and that had a lot of crime, and basically now there's less crime because the criminals have to patrol the crime. And so I, I guess to me it's less of a he's changing the rules and more a he's adapting to the rules to what there is to try and achieve a functional city. I agree with that, but in some ways depends on how the city saw itself at the time. I mean, one of the things we can go into in this is how much the city is still steeped in monarchy versus how long ago the monarchy actually existed. Everyone still kind of views the city as being only recently removed from the idea of having a king as the customs related to being a king, despite the fact that it seems like kings were gone a long time in the past. And when given the opportunity of being a monarchy again, pretty much everyone's immediately on board as if that's still kind of part of their cultural expectations of the monarchy is the norm and it's only natural to transition back to it. Which is kind of interesting because I guess my take on a lot of the, I guess a lot of Carrot's sort of referencing of the rules that he had and things like that made it seem like for the past couple of hundred years, there hasn't been a monarch. There hasn't been quite that stratification of society. And I think, I don't know if that's partly what I'm reading into it because Pratchett wanted to sort of put I guess what I view as a little bit more modern spin on some of the crimes that are within the book. Mm -hmm. I mean, things like loitering and things like that, to me, just don't feel like a medieval society because if everybody's essentially sharecropping except for the the gentry and and lords and ladies, then are you you really going to be loitering outside of a watering hole. I mean, maybe you're there briefly at night to get as drunk as you can on what meager pay you can, but I just don't see that lounging about being an issue. Well, and the, 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 books is, the, the book is almost willfully inconsistent in terms of what era it's choosing to depict. I mean, the setting appears, at least on the surface, to be very classical, you know, stagnant medieval. The kind of medieval society that, unlike in our world, has just existed at relatively the same playing field for several thousand years. But, like you said, with the Book of Laws, with many aspects of the culture, even the nature of the police force, it screams Victorian. It screams a kind of like early modern Britain in terms of what it's depicting, of this, you know, city-dwelling, inhabiting culture, these uh, system of laws that have been expansive enough and well-codified enough that it goes down to things like loitering and things that are targeting very much in-city, working-class kind of crimes. So I, I agree. that it, I, I don't think the books are... I think they're almost intentionally inconsistent, or it's just another example of how he wanted to do a book set in a classic fantasy era, but mostly talk about what he wanted to talk about in Britain. Yeah, and, and basically is 
decided that a city or a semi-modern city is going to be the setting of the book. And then it doesn't really matter because, you know, with enough fantasy or, you know, multiple dimension or whatever, you can sort of hand wave away whatever you've conjured up and it, it really doesn't matter. And I, I guess it's, it's sort of the, one of the things that in my mind, I just need to come to terms with, with Pratchett as an author that he is very hand wavy. Yeah. There's, you ever heard of the mystery science theater mantra? Which one? It's one of those of where if you're wondering, you know, how he eats and breathes and other science facts, just to, just remember it's just a show you really should just relax. Yeah. There's definitely an element of that. I feel like after the initial coda saluting the guards that the book is written to, that that should be the next line that if something doesn't make sense, just kind of go with the humor. Yeah, I, I, I think the suspension of disbelief is is very much a... We've thought about this heavily, and there's, you know, ropes and a guy wire and and many things for for the actual suspension, but we're not really sure what we want you to disbelieve, so just know that it's all there and it's all fine. One of the ways that we, if we ever read more of these, I'll be curious to see how it resolves it, is that as much as we talk about, you know, suspend disbelief, it's just meant to be a funny novel— one of the driving things behind all of this is Carrot's background. That as we kind of deduced early in the story, and as is made abundantly clear at the end of the novel, Carrot is the scion that everybody's been talking about over the course of this book. All their various myths, all their various theories have actually been true, proven true with respect to this one individual. Well, so I know you've spent more time on Wikipedia than I have. Okay, so I should couch that statement... I know that's a factual statement, and I was me- meaning to make it in reference to this book. Mm-hmm. I know you spent more time on Wikipedia in reference to this book and these characters than I have, mm-hmm. given that you talked a little bit about um, Captain Vimes and his appearance in other novels. Yeah. But I don't know if, if you read anything about Carrot, but I guess if I were a betting man, I would guess that his story doesn't completely die, but basically has nothing to do with the rest of the books. And he's maybe a side character and barely mentioned. And that, and that will be interesting because we talked, we joked about in the prior, in one of our prior shows that he's essentially the hero of the story, but a secondary character that he is the, the prince that was promised. He is that which embodies all the myths and stereotypes and rumors and legends they have about the ancient Kings and the signs of science. But it's not his story. Um, right. You know, his tattoo and his non-magical sword and all of those things just don't matter. And I guess my view of the book is he had, Pratchett, had a bunch of ideas for some stuff that he wanted to do. And a good way to sort of keep things moving forward was to have them try and install a monarch. And they had somebody. And so he could play with the... We have somebody that we want to install and we have the actual character within the book. And then that plot just, this was for this book and we're never going to talk about it again because he has other ideas that he thinks are funny and other jokes and whatever that, that he wants to, to tell. I mean, it's sort of like the difference between a comedian that, that tells a couple of jokes and then eventually references them again at, at the end of the 
set mm-hmm. or the one that basically keeps talking about the same story or the same funny joke for a much longer period of time. And I think that Pratchett is, everything is sort of within the same overall universe and I have some things that I can reference and so people are familiar with kind of what's going on in the humor and some of the setting, but you're just going to sort of have those touchstones rather than much more carrying forward. It's very possible that's how it's going to play out. It's hard for us to really know for sure. I mean, it, the fact it ends the novel could either suggest its importance, or as you said, it's just kind of acknowledging the joke, and now we'll move on to other things. I mean, if we're so, to- Discworld might become a TV show. Seriously? Uh, well, so it's been a TV show a couple of times, but I believe that somebody bought the uh, rights to it. So apparently, BBC. Um, and Narrativa, I have no idea, um, has the rights to uh, Discworld. And I don't feel like reading this article. Um, oh, uh, The Watch. So possibly very uh, prescient to, to what we're discussing, along with Good Omens, are possible uh, or maybe even probable outcomings from uh, the BBC and, and some other people. Okay. We can, we, we can essentially do a GOT questions podcast with respect to this. Now that we've both read it, if we, that's what they end up doing in the future. Uh, <laughs> you were silent to that point. Um, yeah. Well, so, so I also got a uh, listener question. Oh, okay. I didn't realize we had any listeners. Go on. Uh, can you comment on why the only time we hear about Discworld is the novel is when the dragons are crossing into it? I don't think that's the only time. I think I think they dis- I think they discussed it a couple other times, but uh, I, I think that, that there's sort of like one or two other casual mentions of of maybe like turtles or elephants, but I think the the main mention of the world of this world was uh, when the dragons were flying away. Yeah, I mean, I, I would go back to what you said about that. His purpose is not just to tell a, uh, a story about this world. It's to tell dis- stories in this world that he's, us- yeah. he's using it as a, a basis for telling little, a constant series of side stories that he finds interesting in the world that as much as you, as much as when you're telling a story that's set on earth, you don't spend time talking about, you know, the exact parameters of the sphere, you just talk about what's happening in a particular location. I think because right. kind of, everybody knows about it. I, I, I think he's kind of viewing it in the same way is that I don't what, when I'm discussing what happened in New York City, I don't need to tell you at what speed the earth was traveling around the sun. It's a level right. of background that doesn't inform the story. And and so and then when the characters ride off into the distance, like you can have them traveling on a road to another city and sort of mention that, or, you know, they get on a plane and head to Tokyo and you have like zoom out and like you see them flying over, you know, a bunch of different countries, but you know, that doesn't really have any particular impact on, on the story. I thought that, you know, given his, his love for classic movie tropes and movie quotes over the course of the story, I thought that ending scene was pretty directly having the two dragons ride into the sunset together. Oh, yes. 
that, though I don't think that they did that he did a quite as funny job as uh, Blazing Saddles. No, not quite like that. Them getting into the uh, what was it? They got they got into a limo as they're riding off. Yes, so, uh, I think it was an uh, it might have been an El Camino, but I'm not a hundred percent on that. And I think it was sort of a joke on on one horse to another. Right. I mean, I mean, I'm trying to remember the end of Blade Runner because he's straight up quoting Blade Runner at the end. But I think the two of them kind of ride off into the sunset in that scene at the end of that. So I, I felt like that that was, you know, showing again that the world that they're in, showing the true scope of what they've accomplished, leaving it fundamentally ambiguous what their future in the universe is, while at the same time hearkening back to the classic thing of disappearing into the sunset for a new journey to begin. That, so do you think Terry Pratchett ever got lost in TV tropes? Yeah, if it... Ooh, I, I forget how long TV Tropes has been about, but if there was any equivalent back in the back when he was writing these in his heyday, I fully believe that he spent many a night up to the wee hours browsing through it. <laughs> um, so, so I don't remember which dragon is which, and you know I I, I know that the the timelines don't don't line up, but it'd be super funny if somebody did a juxtaposition if they ever do like guards guards is a tv show or something like that where you know this dragon flies off and then having Rhaegar fly into the scene oh god <laughs> no we don't I, I in terms of two universes that would never even possibly function in a crossover game of thrones and Discworld have to rank really damn high they seem to be driven by fundamentally separate universal laws that I are just don't sure think that, square. I, but are you sure that Valyria isn't really Discworld? You know, I can't say with certainty that Discworld didn't essentially land in the world of Westeros or whatever. I, I suddenly but how else are you going to get such non-magical swords in a fantasy setting? <sighs> are you suggesting that Carrot's sword is actually a Valyrian steel blade. Because if that's the theory we're going with, that he's literally wielding ice, <laughs> there's a level of fan fiction explanation that we need to go into here that I've not yet prepared for. I mean, it wasn't he described as a redhead? Maybe he's uh, Ygritte's uh, great-great-grandfather or whatever. Uh, oh, God, it's, it's, it's one of... Uh, <laughs> it's Thoron Giantsbane's, uh, one of his bastard children. I know it, Thorman Giantsbane. <laughs> yep. Okay, uh, returning to Carrot briefly, uh, <laughs> if indeed this isn't a one-off joke, I almost wonder whether Terry Pratchett has kind of written himself into a bit of a corner with respect to the character, because he's made a lot of jokes about the fact that it doesn't make sense for a scion to exist, that it's apparently been long enough in time that even if there were some relative of the king that survived and got away, uh, the bloodline would be so incredibly impossibly diluted that it would be no different from a guy on the street. But, as we see with Carrot, he's very clearly and very obviously not just a guy on the street. He bears all the hallmarks of the heir to the throne. He has the kingly command. He has the kingly appearance. He has all of the various fixtures that people are looking for to say, that's a scion, he's here to save the day. So, so, so there are many things that he has, but do you think that he showed up and Ankh-Morpork <coughs> hunched over and waddling? It, was that him riding in on the, on the white steed to save the day the way people were expecting? No, no, he, he blew that one. I'll admit that. 
Um, right, no, no, no. But, but literally, do you think he showed up hunched over and waddling? Because it does say that, like, he basically spent his entire life hunched over in the tiny tunnels. I think it's suggested that he probably had stretched himself somewhat, you know, done a little bit of yoga on his multi-month journey to get down to Moorpork. Uh, but yes, it's very possible that he arrived in humanly, humanly form, but very dwarvish uh, presentation. So a little bit more like the hunchback of Notre Dame than... Uh, what, uh, Aragorn riding into uh, Minas Tirith? Yeah, a little, a little bit more column A than column B. And I think that would be a very Terry Pratchett way of kind of mocking the classic trope in that regard. I mean, much of this book is essentially sending up the idea that a character like Aragorn could ever practically exist for a variety of reasons. But yeah. in terms of actually having an established character where you have made very clear that that is his backstory, it leaves practical questions about whether, is it truly just a one-off joke that will never be explained? Or if it is indeed part of a backstory that will prove relevant afterwards, is he going to try to make any sense of it? I guess to me, because I can't imagine that Carrot or any of his ancestors were actually written into any of the previous novels, mm -hmm. that it'd be kind of a hard thing to deal with unless his uh, City Watch novels are kind of in a semi-separate universe. Which is possible. I mean, I, 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 it's hard. It's hard to say either way. I, I'm inclined to believe that they can't really be because this is a contiguous universe in which Ankh-Morpork is clearly established as just the largest city rather than just in its own isolated area. Yeah, I don't know, but okay. So, I mean, there, I guess there are loads of examples from other authors that that I feel like I could point to, and and they're kind of similar-ish. Mm -hmm. Um, like the Tom Clancy's Jack Ryan novels. Sure, very much so. I mean, he sort of works his way up, but he's clearly not the dude that saved the world like three to five times and, you know, a, a middle novel. And, and I mean, I haven't, I've read like, I don't know, probably three of them, but it, but it didn't go, oh, well, clearly it makes sense for you to be on this mission because you saved us, you know, 10 years ago in, in that submarine thing. Mm -hmm. So I think that having um, kind of more of a 80s, 90s TV episode kind of thing where, like, there are recurring characters and recurring themes, but there's basically a reset at every story is, is a little bit more what, what the world is about. Very possible. It, it's interesting where the I'm so schooled on kind of like a darker and grittier fantasy of lately, uh, of late that there are several things that I saw in this that were they by a different author in a different book, I would see them as either foreshadowing or telegraphing tension or drama down the line, of where you know clearly the carrot Vimes relationship we talked about how key that is in terms of Vimes's character development now essential and important carrot is to the city. We've also seen that one of Vimes' driving motivations is his own lionization of the history of the Watch, and that they were the ones who struck down the monarchy. They were the ones who overthrew them. It was the Watch commander who actually did the deed when no one else was willing to do so. And it's a key part of how he's personally opposed to the idea of monarchy because of this legacy of them. Were this, you know, some other book, I would see that as being them foreshadowing the tension and drama that would result 
of when Carrot is in a position to take the throne is having to confront the fact that Vimes is now his mortal enemy as a result of their contrary conflicting views. But I don't see oh, this as being that, that serious. Blessing after he's been his uh, right-hand man and, and uh, you know, instead of giving him his, his family's sword, uh, gives him, I don't know, a truncheon or something. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it would... I don't see that ever playing out in these books in a way that I could see it be foreshadowing in a different series. Yeah, it, it's you, you look around all the shadowy corners for something to jump out at you, and, and more likely than not, it's it's a clown rather than a, an assassin. <laughs> very, very much so. And um, I feel like those different kind of universal laws inform another interesting topic to discuss over this, is that unlike pretty much any other series I've read that's not just straight farce, which I wouldn't say this really is straight farce. It's close, but I don't think I think it tells enough of its own story. It doesn't qualify. What, what stories have you read that you would classify as straight farce? Uh, I should have put together a list. I've definitely read novels that seem to have no purpose other than telling a joke, or almost kind of verging more into like um, poetry or willful satire than an actual story. Yeah. But I mean, with respect to this, one of the features I would normally associate with farce, or say like a play like um, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. That, there's one. I got. I thought of one. Yay! Uh, of where it's very much where everyone's aware of the world that they're in, or at least the main characters are, and they're aware of it's a play, and they're aware of when things don't make sense. This right. novel flirts with that, of where each... Oh, oh, flirts with it. Straight up says it? It... Glories yeah, in it? it? It. I mean, it, and, you know, I'd say it's consensual but but it goes a little bit further than flirting when, when there the the chapter well okay so it's not a chapter book but whatever the the equivalent of a chapter of discussion of how to get a one in a million shot yeah that is an entire thing where four of our main three three of our main characters essentially spend the entire chapter several appearances for like 40 pages discussing what they understand about what is necessary to make one in a million work. Right. And, and they know that one in a million has to work because that's how these things work and that's how the gods are. And, and you know, that that's whatever it is. And so they, they go from a, you know, this is an outside chance to all kinds of hilariously goofy setup for uh, colon Mm-hmm. To to make his uh, vulnerables shot yeah. uh, in, into uh, the vulnerables of the dragon, mm-hmm. and so so I guess I I wouldn't say that they're flirting with the idea that that the I guess it's not really fourth wall is broken because you know it's still vaguely consistent within the book and it's not really addressing the reader maybe it's sort of addressing the reader's concepts Mm -hmm. um maybe a little bit more of the uh record scratch you know now you're wondering why i got here would be like a a normal like fourth wall break but this is sort of breaking the the tone of the story to an extent a little bit but i think he does that with various asides within the the text as opposed to um adams with hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy where it's more in the footnotes and and things like that there are definitely other authors that do it and sort of play around with that you know understanding of the world and knowledge of the world but but i think this one is very much 
acknowledged in within the text and doesn't and isn't really flirting with that idea of the characters sort of understanding the the farcical nature of the world that they're in. Yeah, it, it's only far in many ways. It's only arguably farcical to us. To them, it's just the world. They understand how the rules work. They have a certain degree of meta knowledge as to how the gods govern actions and what influences them to be involved. We view it as inherently nonsensical and just a joke because to us it's just an expression. But to them, well, the, I, th- I, th- I think you're giving. You're giving it a little bit more credit in terms Possibly. of the the science of non-science or the non-science of science that they ascribe than it is because you know they're they're very clearly very methodical about it and have absolutely no clue. He he does hit the shot. It doesn't hit the vulnerables, but they don't actually know whether it hit the vulnerables or not. Right, but but they sort of just like make up sort of statistics-y talk to, to justify what they're doing. Well, and, I mean, it's not the only scene where this happens. We see several other times of where it, it strongly implied that either due to it actually being the case or just cultural norms that are in place that it seem to believe they are in case, the characters seem to believe that classic fantasy tropes are the rules by which their universe operates. Exactly. You know, when Captain Vimes, you know, rushes in himself and the guards don't want to do anything to him because, you know, if somebody rushes in themselves, clearly that that they're going to win. And it's kind of funny because it's like it's one of those things that can only work for so long. Yeah. You know, it's a if you're going to poke fun of it for the entire story at either all the characters are super dumb and don't pick up on none of those fantasy tropes that they're expecting ever working, or sometime in your world they have to work a lot. Yeah. They either... either The characters have to be so willfully indoctrinated in the culture that they're willing to be blind to it not working, or it actually has to have a margin of truth to it. That's your choices here. Uh, And I think in some ways the book... Uh, at other times, kind of acknowledges that they they either aren't true or are just so inconsistently true that it's pretty much pointless. Because they talk about several times we hear about the gods and them playing dice with the universe. But the book makes abundantly clear that no one actually knows by what rules or what game or what anything else as to what they're doing actually works. So people in the world of Discworld are trying to assign some degree of rational rules or expectations for how fate is governed, how events are expected to progress, what is uh, some order to the universe, where the book itself makes pretty explicitly clear that if there is an order, no one actually knows what it is. Yeah, I, I, I think that that's sort of one of the problems when you don't have a prescribed set of rules to your universe that you sort of end up in and yeah. and then you kind of just rely on your reader's sense of uh, decorum and willing to just sort of go along for the ride, which, and, and, you know, looking back on it, I think one of the reasons that I had so more trouble reading this than I might have otherwise had on face value is... Um, you know, we've, we've read a little bit of, of Brandon Sanderson and talked about it, but mm-hmm. I'd have also been reading and or listening to audiobooks of a lot of his work. And he is 
one of the most meticulous authors in world building. Famously so. Famously so. And staying consistent and having rules that are set rules and that matter. Mm-hmm. And I think that for the most part, Terry Pratchett writes in the Who's Line universe. It's very, it's very possible. In some ways, we're kind of hamstrung by having a pretty limited sample size. I feel like we kind of would have to read another book, either just in Discworld or particularly in the what remains of the Watch saga, to really know whether everything is truly one-off and kind of random, or if there is indeed, as these characters seem to believe, some order to this universe. I mean, I, I will say that... Um, this kind of blind faith to what they believe are the rules of the universe does make for one of the more touching scenes at the end of when um, Cole and the other members, particularly Cole and the other members of the Watch, have set up Vimes to have kind of like a, a, a last date or chance of getting back together with uh, Lady Rampkin, that uh, Colin writes a letter, which he very, you know, explicitly ends with, you know, eh, you know, who knows what might happen, but it's a bit of a one in a million shot which they've made very clear that that's the statement you make to make it work, that that's the statement you make to accomplish it, that if the odds are actually in place, if it is the one in a million chance, someone needs to say those magic words for it to happen. And so this, again, this kind of blind faith, this kind of loyalty, this kind of touching adherence to uh, in support of each other, even if it is nonsensical, it's still a bit of a heartwarming moment that he still took the time and made the effort to offer those magical words in support of his friend. Yeah. And, and I think that, again, sort of as I mentioned, when, like, comics do callbacks and things like that, he's good at making callbacks earlier in the novel to try and tie you into the things that he set up. Oh, very much so. Um, all right. Uh, where should we move on to from here? Um well, you're you're the one that that comes a little bit more prepared, at least uh, to this one, than I am. Um, so we did, you know, the gods playing dice with the world. We did um, Pork as a city. Um, we sort of briefly touched on Discworld as a well, thing in general. Well, let's discuss uh, one philosophical point that we really haven't gone into yet, which is kind of underlying the basis for the entire books and why the watch is what it is. Do we believe there is some degree of rational sense in Lord Vetinari, rational sense or long-term chance of success in what Lord Vetinari has done to the city in terms of legalizing crime? Does he believe this is a long-term plan or a stopgap, and does he later intend to return the watch to some degree of power? Is this entire book essentially just all part of Lord Vetinari's long-term goal? Okay, well, so I think that plays into a couple of things that, that we, I think, touched on a little bit and might be worth discussing a little bit more, which is the history of the city sure. and where we think we are in the city. Um, and uh, before we go too far into this, I want to make a wire reference. Oh, please. I'm going to look forward to this one. Which season? Um. Oh, man, I, I haven't watched The Wire in, in like 10 years, and now you're trying to it, it bear, have the season. It bears rewatching. I re- recently rewatched it, and it is still damn good, other than maybe the most of the last season. Uh, essentially Amsterdam, so where they... Ah, uh, Amsterdam. Yeah. And I feel like that's the 
it's sort of one of those things that it's like it's functional and it works. Is it a long-term solution? Sort of maybe yes and maybe no. Um, and, and that sort of really depends on the people in the city and the things that go on and how well certain things are regulated and certain things aren't. I'm, um, I'm kind of inclined to believe that Lord Vetinari views it as little more than a stopgap. I think, I mean, I, um, I think there's enough hints to suggest that he intends the watch to return to some degree of authority and is using this plan of trying to bring them out into the open so that when the watch is in a position to actually assert practical control again, these organizations will be very easy to suppress or control just because he has all their names, he knows all their families, he knows where they live. And I think between, you know, the book explicitly making clear that he ha he brags to them that he does have this information and that they have to be in line because of it, that Lord Vitnari in his private moments, makes very clear to the reader that he has a long-term plan and a goal for Vimes, that Vimes in particular is important to what he intends for the city, that he is something that he's maintained and nourished and not thrown away on purpose. And I'm, So hmm? I guess I view Vetinari a little bit differently. How so? Uh, so I guess I view him more as what I was hoping certain characters were in certain other series to be very much the go master or chess master, or uh, he has plan upon plan upon plan and backups and backups and backups and, and really has thought about so many moves in advance that he will have a functioning city period it doesn't like that is what's going to happen as long as he is alive, essentially. And I, I would agree with that objective. I think the only dispute we have is what his actual, what he would actually view as winning the game would be. I think, and the, I guess I, I don't really consider it. And, and some of his, the viewpoints that he espoused, I don't think he views it as winning the game. I, I more think of it as him playing the game. What? Like, there is no win. When, when Lord Vetinari offers what appears to be his mindset, which is a kind of pretty cold, pragmatic point of view in terms of what the world is and what he's intending to do with it, he primarily offers these views to Vimes, who clearly we wouldn't expect to respond well to them. <laughs> do you think he's speaking the truth or you think he's purposefully in some ways misrepresenting what he actually stands for? You seem to think that he is indeed that the goal was the efficiency of the city. The goal was maintaining some degree of continuity through him and that everything else is just wheels within wheels to accomplish that. I think that there are, he has goals for this city and to have a completely, I wouldn't say lawless city, but basically an evil city is non-functional. Mm -hmm. And so there are many options to the degree of good and functionality and comfort that the residents of the city can enjoy, and there are different ways to get there. And so if there was essentially a non-functional night's watch, then he needs to spend more time relying on the guilds and political machinations to maintain a functional city where, you know, random people aren't going to get killed. There aren't going to be, there isn't going to be massive thievery. There isn't going to be 
uh, pestilence. There isn't going to be a lot of the problems that you might associate with really grinding the poor down or just random assassinations, things like that. So, which would suggest that his maintenance and maintaining of the watch and Vimes in particular is not necessarily part of a clearly written down long-term plan, but more of a mindset that even a pawn become, can become a queen someday when I need it for whatever. Exactly. And, and so I guess in my mind, he had a bunch of plans for if um, his uh, secretary, which I'm blanking on his name at the moment. Uh, wants. Um, wants, yes. It, Lupin wants. If Lupin wants were to try and take power. And so I imagine certain scenarios where he would have an assassin take him out and basically, you know, fill the positions with somebody else and and either call in one of the favors with the assassin or maybe have an assassin now fill that position or something like that. And if Watts had come up with some other plan, you know, he would have maybe had Thieves Guild, like, you know, do something to him to remove him from power. But he came up with this dragon summoning and, and installing a monarch and, you know, through various, you know, sets of moves that Vetinari put into play, he was able to bring the Night's Watch up from a pawn to, you know, a queen or a rook or whatever. And so now he has a much more powerful watch that he can then enforce some of some set of rules that maybe some of the guilds were lacking, you know, maybe take some more power away from the secret brotherhoods loads of things that he now has this more valuable asset to work with. But I don't think that from the outset, he had that mindset. I think it also in some way, I, I agree that I adhere to the view that uh, from what they say about Lord Vetinari, that it would be very unlikely that he wasn't fully aware of what Wants was doing and it endorsed it and supported it in his own way for his own ends. And I think bolstering the watch was a key aspect of that. I think practically another general benefit as well is that it provides a more recent point of contrast to his own rule. Now, one of the issues he was dealing with was that everyone was still viewing the monarchy through rose-tinted glasses that go back hundreds of years, that are so far removed from the present and what, any, what anybody's ever experienced, that they don't have any of the details, any of the drama, any of the difficulties that would have been actually associated with it. Now, the most recent point of comparison to his rule is a literal virgin-eating monster on the throne. Kind of, kind of, Who probably was a better choice than the previous one, but uh, in, in terms of the uh, uh, the what was it the nephew buffoon? Yeah, and in terms of the functioning of the city, you know, it's like yeah, okay, well the city is going to run pretty well, and we just you know yeah, I, yeah, I liked his foreign policy, very aggressive, you know, really getting what we needed to from our neighbors, finally making those trade deals more reasonable and all that. Exactly. In terms of how. Um, in terms of the history of the city itself and the monarchy, I mean, what is your point of view? Does the book make it all clear how long ago the monarchy was banished? I thought it was implying it was at a minimum of like 10 generations in the past or something. Yeah, I, I think that it flirts with it being more recent. Um, and, you know, we can make the, the England comparisons. And so maybe it was sort of a, a monarchy that was slowly maybe not losing power, but either giving away power, becoming a little bit more on, uh, more constitutional, if you will. Yeah, sure. I mean, they clearly have a, a 
set of laws that could be constitutional. Mm-hmm. Um, but on the other hand, I feel like the presence of the lords and ladies, or to an extent the lack thereof, but like that that's a society to me says that it can't have been that long ago unless something sort of weird happened. Yeah. I mean, it's one of the things where Lady Ramkin's family is like pretty recently, I mean, like, like her dad is pretty much implied to be a Viking raider. It's not, her family's not supposed to be that far removed from, I would say, their conquering aggressive warrior roots. Um, right. So, so again, like, do you net mesh that with, you know, maybe it was her grandfather, great grandfather that actually went on those raids and sort of got folded into the monarchy. So, you know, they'd stop stealing sheep or is this sort of like, uh, you know, many generations back, she's a direct descendant from Genghis Khan. And so she likes fuzzy hats kind of thing. Yes. That is a good, a good comparison of the two different things we're talking about. I mean, one is implying this was all about 50 or 60 years in the past, which doesn't seem to square with the innumerable generations diluting the bloodline. And the other one suggests that it's so damn far removed that how the hell is carrot existing is any identifiable scion. But again, we won't know from just one point of reference whether this is actually willfully playing with continuity for the purpose of humor, or if it's just going to be inconsistent, which is supposed to go just acknowledge it and move on. Yeah, and and so I, th- I think what, what we are going to come come down with and come away with from, from most of what we're going to talk about this episode is that like we can't tell, but that definitional world building is not what this book was set out to do. No. And you know, most of what it set out to do was tell us about the watch, tell us about the people in the watch, and set up the city. And I think that you know it did a good enough job with setting up what the city is and the feel of the city that it didn't feel lacking. The city didn't feel particularly lacking. I mean, yes, there were some, you know, thin points and, and uh, you know, we could spend loads of time talking about the thin points. But basically, you got to feel for the city, what was going on in the city, what the people of the city were like, how did they how they reacted to things. Mm-hmm. And that told a story about the Night's Watch. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I thought, I thought we got the feel of the city as a character, which seems to be as one of his main objectives. From the very beginning, the city is described as being as if it's an anthropomorphic entity. And I thought he develops it fairly well in terms of showing how the people react to things. I enjoyed how very, very capricious the residents of the city are to the point that Dragon literally just ate prior people, has burrowed itself in the castle. And everyone's just kind of going, oh, we can't put up with the dragon. And within three minutes of conversation, they're all kind of like, you know what? I'm kind of behind a scaly monarchy. Yeah. And, and the various bit characters. I mean, I'm trying to remember. What, what's the name of the guy who's uh, the, the hawker who's selling, like, you know, little potions that are brought in from monks or sausages that no one actually eats? Oh, uh, man. Like it. Dibbler? Something like Dibbler? So, something like that. That's that's That sounds reasonable. I, I'm willing uh, to believe that Vok Morpork has showed up in previous books in some way, that he may have been like a recurring character. But um, Apparently Death is a fairly Death was uh, fun. recurring character. Uh, like the head of the Thieves Guild kind of gets mentioned. I mean, there are a handful of people that get, get mentioned. And, and I, you know, again, we talk about him turning tropes upon it 
upon their head. And it's like, well, obviously the head of the Thieves Guild is going to be at least a somewhat important character. And I don't think we, other than when he's sort of called in to talk to Lord Vetinari, like n- ever see him again. Oh yeah. And we, yeah. And the head of, and the, head of the uh, Assassin's Guild were, I think it's Lupine Wands actually strongly suggests to or hints to him that he wants him to be, that he wants him to kill him. So we, so we can stop dealing with the torture of the dragon. In many yeah. other books, he'd play some role in the climax with respect to that. In this book, he shows up for essentially two scenes as nothing more than commentary. Right. Um, and then, I, I feel like the, the one recurring character that we really haven't talked about and that sort of lets us peek into the weirdness of, of the world is, is uh, the librarian. It, it's true. We've kind of breezed over him, but he plays a pretty... As- both essential and non-essential role in the story. He, he kind of pokes fun at the uh, recent joke that someone uh, basically, I think it was within the past like two years, somebody was looking at uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark and basically was like, huh, Indiana Jones has absolutely no function in this movie whatsoever. <laughs> Hey, 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 he's alive at the end to take the Ark to then be lost in a warehouse. If he hadn't been present, it would have just been sitting in the middle of the island. Okay, but other than that, like, he, he does not affect the story basically at all, other than, you know, he, he gets to be the main character. But I, I, I did watch that right up. I'd also dispute it in the sense that the Ark would not have been found but for him. It's promptly seized by the Nazis, but in the sense that the arc which drives the story would not have been uncovered but for his efforts. Right, and so if it wasn't uncovered, it would have ended up in the same obscurity that it was at the end of the story. Yes. Uh... And if it happened to be uncovered, it also essentially would have ended up in the same obscurity because everybody around it dies, so... Uh, it's fun that you mentioned Raiders of the Lost Ark, because I, I, this is a tangential reference to a certain degree, but I feel like in some ways, Indiana Jones and Guards, Guards, and maybe Discworld as a whole, kind of sort of draw from the same dime store serials in terms of uh, their influence and background. It, and instead of the spaghetti western, it's the uh, pulp fantasy. Yes, that kind of thing. Yeah, um... It, it reminds me of a, a series of books that I, I started reading. It, it's so straightforward, pulling from all the tropes, and doesn't do it at, ironically, and just bullheadedly just plows into a wall. What's this? Um, the Sword of Truth series. I have heard um, about it. I've not read I think any of it. Terry Brooks. And um, it, it came after Wheel of Time. And there's basically a set of characters or a set of people in it or whatever that that heavily reference and and in many ways just sort of take wholeheartedly from Wheel of Time and just like, oh, that was a good idea. I'm going to put it in my book. And this very much throws that on its head. And um, it's sort of one of those funny things that, you know, if we go for, for opposites or, or, or similarities, then, then yeah, I would say that Indiana Jones is sort of kind of like the Western similarity to, to this, where to an extent it very much pokes fun 
at some of those tropes. Mm-hmm. Um, an iconic scene of Indiana Jones that pokes fun at the tropes and and has other funny backstory is the uh, bringing a gun to a sword fight. A wonderful scene, which, as you said, has a funny production history behind it in terms of it not being what they originally intended to film. Again, um, so all sorts of funny things, but we... Uh, er- so every time we start talking about... We, we go character, elsewhere. <laughs> Okay. We we wind up on some odd tangent, and uh, I feel like it's in many ways appropriate because um, this this is sort of a goofy character that has a weird backstory that we don't really know about. But the librarian is an orangutan, and sort of not uh, originally so. Right, not originally so, but apparently is completely competent as a librarian, and no one sort of wants to mess with an angry orangutan, so they just kind of let it be. Mm-hmm. It's with the orangutan, essentially, and a couple of vague mentions here and there that we find out that Discworld is a multidimensional universe. Which is very casually kind of thrown in with... I mean, I don't really know the point of it. Uh, I mean, he uses this multidimensional universe to go through, essentially to a parallel universe, or at least even possibly through time, to see yeah. what happened in terms of the theft of the book. Yeah, he sort of, I think he goes back in time, because it's sort of like the, oh, am I going to talk to myself and wake myself up? Mm-hmm. Maybe I shouldn't do that. And the book is, the book, I mean, the book was pretty open about the fact that there is a multidimensional element, or at least a different sphere or different dimension element attached to it. From the very first pages, I mean, some of the very first pages are describing the fact that the dragons went elsewhere. That when, and and also, it's like they went elsewhere, but also in their dimension, they're sort of like folded up, and then there's sort of like a mass of dragons and treasure, and that's it. Yeah, they're and, and like this, you know, stuffed into a bag, kind of. Yeah, I think it describes them as being packed in like sardines, that they're so tightly compressed together, which apparently characters ponder later, maybe due to the fact that since they essentially need magic to live that they kind of fled the world as the world as magic bled from it and that they only live or persist now essentially kind of wrapped up like their own little magic battery to keep going wait so there are dragons that need magic to live huh and the dragons are associated with there being magic in the world and the exit of magic and the exit of dragons are tied with each other oh interesting are we I'm suggesting sure that, that doesn't relate to anything? Anyway, no, so no, no, we're no. talking about dragon space and L space, um, and and actually that sort of plays into like the weirdness of magic in this world. This book pulls no punches on the fact that magic is a unique, confusing, and dangerous thing only really engaged in by the most marginal or insane members of society. That sort of. I mean, but also incredibly common and basically anything that's that's vaguely normal in our world, there's a magic equivalent. Yeah, but it's something that essentially kills hundreds or thousands of students on a regular basis, just even in reading the various books in the library, which are distinctly described as alive entities. Yeah. And, but everyone's and, just okay with that. Yeah, and, and they are, but, but they have... As mundane things as neon signs, essentially, that are intensely magical. Uh, Very much so. To the point that the driving force for the story, the basis of the plot, 
is the theft of various random mundane magical items for the purpose of breaking the magical barriers that separate dra separate dragons from us. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like trying to imagine a, a world where you're essentially playing, like, reverse Russian roulette to drive a car. Yeah. And it's like, well, that makes absolutely no sense, but we're just going to completely ignore it because we have to drive to work every day. So, you know, maybe we'll get the bullet every so often, but it's part of life. I've heard uh, this kind of inherently, almost excessively magical world where magic's the basis of... Uh, how technology operates is a justification for um, medieval stagnation in terms of uh, fantasy worlds. That if a world was indeed so wrapped around magic to the point that even basic electronics in your home are, nece are necessarily powered by magic, it could explain why technology doesn't seem to progress any further because they don't have any reason to. They've got right. their own source. But then you wouldn't have like, you'd still more likely have like a more normal middle class rather than like, peasant, you know, spending all their time in fields. So it's kind of like, it's one of those things that, that sound, that sounds great until you look at it a little bit harder. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think that there are ways to do it, you know, if basically it wasn't a well distributed thing or it's not common or it's expensive or something. Mm -hmm. And then, so basically so there's a force keeping technology from progressing because that's how you stay in power. Right. But, um, in, but in, in this, they make pretty explicitly clear that one of the characters buys a magic charm, I think, to ward off alligators for, like, five bucks. So I think it kind of defeats that idea of it being a pretty exclusive commodity. Not that we know that the magical charm works, of course. Right. I mean, but you don't see any alligators, do you? Well, the, that character is later attacked by an alligator, but I think it's after <laughs> yeah. it gives up the magic charm. So Exactly. It worked perfectly. But the librarian essentially kind of serves as a support role in the sense that he's always connected with various characters around them and actively helps them succeed in their goals. But and, as you hmm? And is a pivotal character at the end, which was another thing that, that was kind of a joke that he really wanted to make, which was, you know, don't call an ape a monkey. Yeah. They, they, they've been building up that one for a hell of a lot of pages. Right. Uh, but in we talked about this whole multidimensional thing about him trap, about the librarians being the only ones who know about L space and how it works. What's the point of it? What is he trying to say or accomplish with the idea of there being a multidimensional world? Because it's a, it's a weird plot point that goes on a while of him finding out who's responsible. But if he hadn't have done that, Nothing in the story really would have changed. Him finding that out doesn't really drive the resolution of the plot, does it? No, I, I don't think it drives the resolution of the plot. I, I mean, I think at best what you get is a little bit about Wance's background or thought processes or, you know, like how he got there. But, but really, you know, I, I don't think it really adds much of anything. Um, I think it was, I think to a certain extent, we have an author that writes his notes within different character viewpoints mm -hmm. and maybe he'll refer to it later. 
you know, in, instead of opening up a new Word document and, and writing, ooh, I had this really great idea about a different dimension of, of library space where more, you know, books and are, are stored and, you know, how you, like, go into a bookshop and you wander down, you know, the different uh, bookshelves and aisles and you sort of get lost in your own thoughts and you're just lost in things and you start picking up and opening books and, and time seems to disappear isn't that, you know, that's a great idea. And then he just, like, writes it. I, and then, like, oh, I'll just leave it here. I agree. I mean, it's one of those things of where it could have potentially limitless potential in what he wants to expose and how various ways he wants to resolve plot lines in the future. Which, if it comes back up ever again, sure, great. It's a, it's a setup to uh, your ultimate deus ex machina for any plot situation you need to write your way out of. But for this book, he does this. He finds out that Wants is responsible. He finds out the book has been stolen and everything else. And then he goes to confront Wants, realizes that Vimes has been imprisoned, and instead doesn't do that and goes and rescues Vimes. So it, yeah. it doesn't really accomplish much here other than just, I guess, further developing the world, which is, I guess, the entire point of this podcast we're talking about. Yeah, I, I think, you know, it, it's perfect for this episode. It's just one of those things that doesn't really make sense. Um, at least within this book. And, and I think in many ways, it's really funny that this book is considered one of the better entries into the world. Yeah. I mean, I, I've heard people talk about the earliest books that since that they are very much written as separate stories, just set in the same universe, that there are inconsistencies or examples of him not getting a, necessarily a firm grasp of the universe yet. So I've heard this one be described as a good entry point because he's under the, everything has kind of been set in order by by now. Doesn't mean we necessarily <laughs> understand what's going on, but things are consistent. Yeah. Or, or at least writes himself with enough outs that it's never going to matter. That works. That's an alternative explanation of it. Yes. Um, and and so I can see that you know if you're going to tear through a bunch of books that this could be a good entryway. And and I guess the other thing is if you're mostly going to just focus on the city, that this is a good entry into that. Right. Whereas I could, I don't see it being an entry into any larger world because, you know, we don't know anything about it and it's not like we're going to find out anything about it. Yeah. I suppose in some ways that as a result of these not kind of connecting to an overarching narrative, the series kind of naturally lends itself to reading in subgroups. That once you've established a, a setting within a setting and a group of characters within your vast per, um, plethora of different people in this world, you're kind of naturally inclined just to stick to them because you don't really have any other connection to the rest of the world. Yeah. Unless and you just like his writing style. Yeah. You could some always something you can return to, and, and you have maybe it is a, a line of consistency and a less consistent set of books. Less consistent or inherently random. Only one will know is if we actually try to read more. But I, I feel like we've got a reasonable impression of what we can deduce of the world from this particular novel in the series. Do we have anything else you'd like to talk about with this one? Um, I, th I think that's about it. I think that uh, we, we've done our... We, we could poke holes and, and, and speculate forever, but, but I think that... We're just spitballing here. Yeah. But in, in terms of our overall and now final opinions, we've talked about 
Guards, Guards, over the course of three separate episodes. We've discussed this book to the tune of going on four hours of material. In conclusion, now that you've discussed it into really ex an excessive way, have your views of it changed at all from when, you, when we first met down to talk and joke with each other? Or are you consistent in terms of how you uh, viewed this particular novel? Oh, I, I, that's a little tough because I enjoyed the discussion. Mm -hmm. um, I, I would be very, very hard-pressed to read this again. <laughs> and I think that's going to very much summarize this show from our perspective is that main thing we're here and enjoy is talking about it. that you know yeah. we can find ways to make it very entertaining to discuss the back of a, of a cheerios box and i we met it may be a fun challenge for us after we get particularly drunk on a uh, whiskey weekend or something um <laughs> but in terms of the material itself i mean we can enjoy it or we could not enjoy it but any book once discussed among friends can just become much more fascinating and interesting yeah and and again like i don't think it wasn't a rough enough read or anything like that for me to not read any more Pratchett. Mm -hmm. It wasn't even bad enough for me to put down. Um, I think, you know, I'm, I'm a fast enough reader that it was just fine, mm -hmm. which is actually kind of funny because there are books that I have put down and some I take no shame in, but other people are aghast when I mention them. Even that I didn't particularly like the book, I didn't think that it. I did think that it was reasonably well written, and I would read more. I would read more Pratchett. I probably won't jump to do it right now, and maybe not opposed to certain authors that have heavy strengths where he either doesn't care or he's lacking. Yeah, and I feel like it's one of those books that you have to go in with uh, a full expectation of what you're getting out of it to decide whether you're going to enjoy it or not. That it's a book that's a very much a genre piece. It is of a certain category that a certain particular form of person at a certain stage of their life or a certain moment of their day will very much appreciate. In terms of yeah. general common appeal, don't assume going in that it's going to be just widespread mass appeal. Yeah, and I don't know. It kind of reminds me of, um, have you seen the movie Anchorman? I have seen Anchorman, and I know it is beloved among many of our generation I'm decidedly indifferent to it. Yeah, and a lot of my friends, uh, friends that I grew up with, and, and I'm sure amongst our group of uh, Mangum friends, there will be people that think it's an amazing movie and hilarious and things like that, and it was built up that way. And so I think in my mind, I built up Pratchett as an extremely well-known writer, an extremely well-loved writer. He's quoted incredibly often. Um, there's appearances on internet forums and, and popular culture all over the place to Discworld and things about it. And I expected something different and I didn't get that. Right. And I think that was my main problem or one of my problems with the book. I mean, I have some other problems, but I think those are more minor quibbles rather than just an expectation that was not fulfilled. And I think that's true for any particular genre. And I think it's especially true for this is where my expectation going in was I was pretty directly described between Reddit and uh, Wikipedia, what I was getting. And I was down with that. I was okay with that, expecting that coming in. 
And so I was able to appreciate it just because it was in what I was seeking out. That if I'd just gone in fully blind, or if I hadn't been in the mood for it, I I may not have been able to soldier through as much as you did. Yeah. You have invited the question, though, at this point. Which particular novel or fiction or whatever else would you render me most aghast about that you did not make it through? Uh, oof. Uh, probably the most aghast would be... Um, so there's another English author who I'm pretty sure you're familiar with. Oh, God, this is uh, going to hurt me. I already see it coming. I think you've told me this before. Yeah, I, I have told you this before. Some of his, his books have been adapted into movies. Um, I believe it's, um, what is it, The Fellowship of the Ring? Uh, yeah, yeah we, we, we've discussed that you were not. How, how far did you make it? I, I, I got halfway through. I, and I did two things that I don't usually do. I put the book down and I didn't pick it back up. And I also put it down face down, like, you know, so the spine bends a little bit because I was so frustrated that I was halfway into the book. Literally nothing had happened. And I was also, I was a teenager at the time and I was just like, Mary's a dude. How on earth is Mary a dude? It doesn't make sense to me. And I think that was like the first time that it used a gender pronoun other than saying his name. Mm -hmm. And it was just like, okay, well, they went to a party and they walked. And now I'm halfway through the book and I'm done. Yeah, it's one of the things that the movie kind of breezed over is about the first 300 pages of Fellowship of the Ring. They're still in the Shire. That. There's an extended period of where Gandalf isn't going off and investigating and gone for like 20 years before he then comes back for the ring. And you're either okay with that or you're not. It's something that a lot of, a lot of uh, you know, depictions of it have kind of streamlined a lot of the details in, that, in terms of that. Yeah, and I guess that's sort of one of those things that I think I now would at least be willing to try reading it again if I ever take a trip to the English countryside. <laughs> It's a it's a it's a fun point of comparison because very very much uh, Lord of the Rings is built is written about is commenting on the transition of British society between a much more classic romantic kind of world and a much in Tolkien's very much of you a darker modern era the, though his focus is not necessarily a, cr- a class transition but I would say a technology transition. Yeah, the the roads and the trees. The, the Lots ro- of roads and trees. The roads and the trees and the mechanization of warfare. I mean, Tolkien once wrote that... Uh, I mean, to Tolkien, the orcs were very much World War One soldiers. And much of what he's writing about is the mechanization and the dehumanization of warfare in society as a result of the progress of technology. And for me, Tolkien was all instructive. But I fully... This is the fun thing about this show, is that you're really going to see us just utterly hate each other for our opinions... We've kind of known each other too long and tried too successfully or unsuccessfully to piss each other off in the past that we're ever going to reach that kind of breaking point at that you have said something that so mortally offends me that we're kind of done with further discussion. Yeah, oh. I, I think in books, things that, that's definitely not going to happen. And, and also, yeah, we have a co- we have a colorful enough history <laughs> we, that... We know that language is essentially inoffensive because we have an underlying uh, friendship. It's one of those wonderful things about this show that we'll hope you'll enjoy with us. But yeah. for next um, week... Actually, mm. so the other book that you probably won't be as aghast about, but maybe so, are 
listener or two will, which is um, I read about a chapter of Handmaiden's Tale, maybe two or three. You know, and I'll admit this, but I don't think I've ever mentioned to Mr. Bridget, I've never actually read Handmaiden's Tale at all. I've heard many good things, I've, but uh, I've never actually picked it up. And from, I, from your yeah, one chapter review, I'm guessing you wouldn't recommend it. I just found the prose unpleasant to read. What? I think, I'm sure the story would end up being interesting. I, I would guess, at least. It seems to have been super popular. I did watch the first episode of Handmaiden's Tale and also didn't particularly enjoy it. But mm-hmm. I, th- I think that's sort of the, you know, it's a dystopian world and, uh, you know, I'm not sure I just desperately wanted to get into a dystopian uh, fiction when I had enough of that and I started watching some West Wing. Mm-hmm. But... It was sort of one of those combinations of the the prose was unpleasant. The the chap the layout on the Kindle version was just not easy to read, and I just sort of gave up there. So I have so many other books that I really want to read that it's you know having a book there that I just didn't like enough wasn't worth it. Falling also into the category of something completely different. Uh, as we discussed last week, our plan for next week is a novel which, BJ, you being the speedy reader that you are, I've already uh, breezed through. Would you agree that it is as pretty much on the other side of the dial as possible from uh, Guards Guards? Yeah, I would say it's uh, a very different entry into a world of fantasy fiction. We can sort of talk about, you know, how much fantasy we actually think that there is there and how much fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, which, which, by, which by way of explanation the the book for next week if you don't remember is uh, A Monster Calls by Patrick Ness and I will put that up in the comments somewhere rather than just mentioning it in the episode so it's a little bit easier to uh, reference Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah it was um, as Lee would, would put it it was like 200 Kindle pages or something like that it was you know very it it was a it was an easier read for me, and it and it was a chapter book, so I could pause after chapters, um, and for, hopefully you guys will like it. Yeah, indeed. Maybe we'll, maybe maybe proportionally we'll get Lee having read ten pages to offer some commentary too while we're going through it. But, <laughs> folks, it's uh, all. What you say? Yeah, that sounds good. Um, the other thing that I was going to mention is. Um, Possibly, we might continue in a young adult theme and do uh, some Sanderson book or books, um, the Reckoner series, starting with Steelheart. Um, And maybe we'll finalize that at some point soon so we have something to uh, pick up after an episode or two for uh, a Monster Calls. We have a plan for the future. I'm eager to read more Sanderson after how much we enjoyed Legion. Um, But for now, I think we've covered enough material for one day uh yep. folks always a pleasure to have you here listening with us hope you'll we'll join you'll join us uh, next week or whenever we st- come back for uh, another book to uh, read in our impromptu digital book club but for the time being we wish you well and we hope you enjoy reading with us yep thanks for joining us and you can find our all of our content on mangumtalks.com we should have pretty much everything up on itunes we have a subreddit uh, dedicated to all of our content. You can find out about certain content on Twitter, 
which is uh, hosted by our inaugural leader, Lee. And I hear tell that there might be an NBA podcast coming out in the not-too-distant future. God, we are broaching into categories that I barely understand, but I'm glad people enjoy them. (laughs) (laughs) Me as well. Um, PJ, till next time, man. And keep listening.